late at night, under the glittering stars, Jacob Hausman stands alone beside a solitary six-pounder cannon and stares into the darkness. Only yesterday, it seems, there was nothing stopping his consolidation of power. Across the quietly lapping waves, a whole new county had been forged by his own guile and cunning, a pristine and empty land that should have been, by all accounts, entirely under his control. But now, from his tiny fortress island, the six-pound cannon is pointed not outwards towards some foreign enemy, but inwards into his own would-be kingdom. Since the day it was brought into existence in the halls of Tallahassee, Dade County, in whose very name a massacre was memorialized, had been a war zone, overrun by a ruthless and tenacious enemy. Indeed, the whole of the Florida Peninsula was right now caught up in a violent paroxysm. Year after year, this war dragged on. Year after year, he has been forced to wait here on his tiny island throne, all his plans on hold. He craves nothing more than its end, the day when the land will finally be rid of these savages who stand in the way of progress, his progress. And then the unwelcome thought creeps into his mind. Perhaps before it's all over, the war will come to him. All these years, the enemy has lurked not 30 miles away, and it is only by the grace of God that violence has not made the short trip across the water to the shore of Indian Key. If that were to happen, this little six-pounder cannon might serve him with distinction. It is late. Hausman turns, walks back up the gravel path to his home, and goes to bed. Welcome to the Story of Miami. Episode 12, The Florida War. The slaughter of Major Dade and his men in 1835, followed closely by the murder of William Cooley's family on the New River, and the dramatic siege and destruction of the Cape Florida Lighthouse on Key Biscayne, had marked the eruption of long-simmering tensions into full-blown war. With any pretense of diplomacy now falling pitifully by the wayside, the expansionist ambitions of the headstrong and well-financed United States were pitted against the determined resistance of the Seminoles, who by now had endured generation upon generation of violent expulsion, first from one homeland, then from another, and had, by necessity, emerged as fearsome warriors. Known by scholars as the Second Seminole War, it was far and away the largest conflict the United States ever engaged in against any Native American peoples. The unexpected difficulty in dislodging the Seminoles from Florida soon came to capture the attention of the American public, 
and as the conflict dragged on, it came to be known in casual conversation as the Florida War. To the Seminoles, many of whom had, in their youth, witnessed their families killed and their homes burned to the ground by Andrew Jackson's troops, it was simply the continuation of the same long conflict they had been fighting all their lives. From the start, the fighting was an enormous debacle for the U.S. military, who suffered defeat after defeat at the hands of the Seminoles. One after another, the Army's best generals took their turn leading troops into the swamps and hammocks, only to be outwitted, ambushed, and forced into humiliating retreat, or simply slaughtered en masse by the Seminoles, who could appear suddenly from the undergrowth and disappear just as quickly. General Clinch, General Gaines, General Scott, General Jessup, the future president, General Zachary Taylor, General Armistead, Colonel Worth, each took their turn at the helm of the war effort, was worn down by the harsh impossibilities of fighting in the heat and muck of Florida, and inevitably requested to be relieved. To outsiders, the continued failure to make headway against the Seminoles' inferior technology and smaller numbers seemed inexplicable. In 1837, a bitter President Jackson declared that the people of Florida were, quote, damned cowards, end quote, and that with 50 women, he could, quote, whip every Indian that ever crossed the Suwannee, end quote. A representative from the Florida Territory, Joseph M. White, wrote about President Jackson's tirade regarding a purported force of 600 Seminole warriors. Quote, He said the people of Florida had done less to put down the war or to defend themselves than any other people in the United States. He said they ought to have crushed it at once if they had been men of spirit and character. He said if five Indians had approached into the white settlements of Tennessee and Kentucky, not one would have ever got out alive. He said the men had better run off or let the Indians shoot them, that the women might get husbands of courage and breed up men who would defend the country. He maintains that there never was 600 Indians. When he had finished his harangue, which, of course, was not very agreeable to me, I said to him, Your army and all your generals have been in the field. Why have they not conquered these 600 Indians? And why are the people thus reproached for not doing what all your regular troops and Tennesseans have failed to accomplish. Among other things, I told him that if he would mount his horse, I thought he could soon put an end to the war, but that it was not every son of Achilles who could wear the armor or wield the sword of his father. End quote. There were, it turned out, quite a bit more than 600 Seminole warriors, and indeed, it is generally agreed that the military was woefully unprepared for the conditions faced in Florida. Much of the American fighting force was made up of volunteers and militiamen who had little fighting experience. But even the enlisted men were not trained or equipped for the harsh Florida landscape. Setting out to do battle in an unfamiliar, waterlogged, swampy wilderness beset by mosquitoes, sawgrass, and often unbearable heat, the traditional military tactics of the time, designed for set-piece battles in large open spaces, were a poor counter for the Seminoles, who knew the landscape intimately, could traverse it quickly, 
and employed guerrilla hit-and-run tactics that left columns of Tennessean and Missourian volunteers reeling. Many military historians agree that no other American conflict so closely resembles the conditions faced by the U.S. troops in Florida than those encountered 120 years later in the jungles of Vietnam. Shortly after the sensational attacks in South Florida that signaled open warfare, the U.S. government learned that the Seminoles were trading heavily with Cuban and Caribbean merchants, who were supplying them with weapons and powder. The Navy was therefore pulled into the conflict to patrol the more than 1,000 miles of coastline and blockade the Seminoles from outside contact. Included in this effort was the establishment of three joint Army-Navy outposts on the southeast coast, at the openings of waterways that led into the Everglades, where Seminoles were known to be hiding. At Jupiter Inlet was Fort Jupiter. At the New River, where the Cooley family had been massacred, Fort Lauderdale was established. And at the Miami River, where Richard Fitzpatrick Cape Florida settlement had been left deserted, was Fort Dallas named after Navy Commodore Alexander James Dallas. Now, technically, there were two posts established at Miami. The Navy set up their depot on Key Biscayne, under the burnt-out corpse of the Cape Florida Lighthouse. Men and supplies would be delivered here and then transported inwards across the bay, where the Army established a presence on the northern bank of the Miami River amidst Richard Fitzpatrick's now overgrown plantation. However, the journey from the barrier island to the mainland, trivial today thanks to the wonders of modern civil engineering, was at that time a difficult one for boats laden with equipment. Supply ships repeatedly ran aground in the shallow waters, especially on a large sandbank at the mouth of the Miami River. Moreover, the initial fort, and I'm using air quotes there, which was in reality no more than a small wooden cabin and tents for the troops, was not very well protected against the threat of a Seminole attack, and early expeditions up the river to harass the natives in the Everglades proved both dangerous and futile. The difficulties presented by this mainland outpost often made it impracticable for the army, who on multiple occasions abandoned the post and withdrew to Key Biscayne. But as the war progressed, its focus gradually moved in the direction of South Florida. In 1838, the Army and Navy returned to the Miami River to re-establish Fort Dallas and ramped up their efforts to locate and ransack Seminole crops in the Everglades. In either 1838 or 1839, our sources give us conflicting dates, Army Captain S.L. Russell was sent up the river to establish another fort at the South Fork of the Miami River, right at the entrance to the Everglades. This roughshod encampment, located roughly at Northwest 32nd Avenue and South River Drive, was named, somewhat ambitiously, Fort Miami. But sadly, Fort Miami was not to be. After only a few days, Captain Russell and his men, amid tall sawgrass on the river, were ambushed by the Seminoles, and the captain was killed. He was buried on an old Tequesta Indian mound near the mouth of the Miami River, and the Navy depot on Key Biscayne was christened Fort Russell in his honor. 
south of Cape Florida, the Navy's blockade was greatly aided by the many small wrecking communities of the Florida Keys, who jealously guarded their waters against would-be traders from the Caribbean. On their isolated islands, the small population of the Keys saw the Seminoles and the war as a maddening nuisance, but welcomed the Navy's presence. Jacob Hausman, kingpin of Indian Key, and Richard Fitzpatrick, Florida legislator and owner of the New River and Miami River plantations, completed their project of carving Dade County from the eastern half of Monroe. But with any ambitions at Cape Florida now stymied by the war, they were forced to bide their time in the Keys. Hausman, for his part, continued to plot and scheme for his own enrichment, and increasingly found himself in legal trouble. As one visitor to the Keys wrote, quote, There are many poor persons, and some of them not noted for honesty, settled on the Florida Keys who are compelled to deal with this man. He, by allowing them credit and indulgence in his store, gains an ascendancy which he turns to some account. These people are his agents, or spies, when occasion requires they are brought in as disinterested witnesses to prove a meritorious claim for salvage. End quote. Hausman was convicted of embezzling salvaged goods in 1836, and two years later, his wrecker's license was revoked by the judge of the Superior Court of Key West, who was getting tired of Hausman's appearances in his courtroom. It was a major blow to Hausman's personal income. Nevertheless, Indian Key remained a busy and important hub, and Navy Commander Isaac Mayo established a garrison there in 1839. Quote, considering the post of great importance, for should the Indians capture it, they would be abundantly supplied with ammunition and arms, also a large supply of provisions, End quote. It was during this period that another distinguished character joined the community at Indian Key. On Christmas Day, 1838, the prominent horticulturist Dr. Henry Perrine arrived with his family. Dr. Perrine was one of the nation's leading experts on tropical plants and their various miraculous uses in medicine and industry. In pursuit of his research, Perrine had established correspondence with various characters throughout South Florida, including our old friend John DuBose, the lighthouse keeper, to whom Perrine had sent seeds of various plants for cultivation on Key Biscayne. Based on the encouraging results of these early experiments, Perrine had become convinced that South Florida was the ideal place to cultivate tropical plants for the U.S. economy. Subsequently, he had petitioned Congress for a plot of land for this very purpose, and been granted permission to establish a 36-square-mile township on the southern tip of the Florida Peninsula. But by then, the place was a war zone. Perrine therefore resolved to bide his time in the Keys until the war was over. He took up residence on Indian Key, becoming a prominent member of the little community, and made frequent trips to the surrounding islands and even, at great personal risk, to the mainland, developing his plans for after the war and searching for the best location to establish his township. He soon settled on a location near Cape Sable, on Florida Bay, and waited patiently for the bothersome war to come to an end. A peculiar little side story played out during this period that puts into focus just how remote South Florida still was in the late 1830s. 
Indian Key's permanent population was perhaps 30 or 40 people, sufficient to make it the busiest community in all of South Florida outside of Key West and practically the only populated settlement in the whole of Dade County. Since it was the de facto county seat, Hausman had succeeded in establishing a superior court of Dade County on his island. But shortly thereafter, residents of both Dade and Monroe County petitioned to have the new court dissolved. In the whole county, there were only 16 persons eligible to serve as jurors, making a fully impaneled jury all but impossible to assemble, and severely hindering the administration of justice. Upon hearing the petitioner's arguments, the U.S. Senate agreed, and the Superior Court of Dade County was dissolved, after which all Superior Court proceedings returned to Key West. Meanwhile, on the peninsula, the war ground on. Despite the many early setbacks encountered by the U.S., the young nation remained steadfastly determined to remove every Seminole in the territory to the reservations of Oklahoma and open up Florida for settlement. It didn't take long for everyone to see that this was a war of attrition, and it would be won by whichever side had the wherewithal to outlast the other. The seemingly unlimited resources of the U.S. government and willingness of Congress to continue appropriating exorbitant funds for the war's prosecution ensured that the Seminoles had little hope of returning to a peaceful life as long as they remained in Florida. Slowly but surely, the U.S. pushed down the peninsula from the north, along the rivers, and through the swamps and hammocks. Many Seminoles fought to the death. Some fled further south. Many were captured, whereupon they were transported to Tampa Bay to begin their journey to the reservation in Oklahoma. Many black Seminoles were among those captured, and they faced the unwholesome prospect of being sent north rather than west. This tragic fate befell many, but eventually the U.S. settled on a policy of sending black Seminoles to the reservations with the rest of the tribe. In late 1837, the horrific Battle of Lake Okeechobee brought the Americans' southward advance to a standstill, but by this time, most of the remaining Seminoles had been pushed south of the lake, into the still uncharted depths of the Everglades. And by the following summer, a series of military posts had been constructed across the width of the peninsula, effectively cornering the Seminoles in the Everglades. Now, the Seminoles did not operate under a hierarchical command and control structure like the U.S. military. Rather than a centralized leadership, they were more a community of semi-autonomous groups, there were among them bands descended from the Yuchis, Mikasukis, Creeks, as well as many black Seminoles, diverse groups whose shared identity was forged from their grandparents' and great-grandparents' experiences migrating to Florida from their ancestral lands. United by their common culture and their common enemy, they worked together to mount a vicious resistance against U.S. encroachment but none spoke for all the Seminoles. Throughout the war, different bands showed a willingness to work with the Americans. Some had in fact packed up and moved west right at the start of the war. Others eventually gave up as the war progressed. Still others came to the negotiating table to settle things with the U.S. commanders, many of whom 
exhausted and morally conflicted over the plight of the Seminoles, desired peace themselves. But the leadership in Washington pressed for the campaign to continue. In 1837, Chief Osceola and several other Seminole leaders were captured along with their men, and either imprisoned or sent west. In 1838, Chief McAnope was captured, and he and his band of Seminoles also went to the reservation. In both cases, the chiefs were captured while meeting with the generals under a flag of truce. And when news of these deceitful and dishonorable tactics emerged, it reinforced the American public's growing distaste for the war. With the conflict dragging on, and with public opinion turning against it, a tentative peace treaty was finally negotiated in 1839, allowing the Seminoles to stay in southern Florida. For several months, it seemed the war might be over. But in July 1839, a detachment of soldiers under Colonel William Harney in southwest Florida was attacked by a large group of Seminoles. Caught completely off guard, most of the men were killed, and Colonel Harney himself was forced to flee by canoe wearing only his underwear. It was a humiliating setback for the U.S., not to mention Colonel Harney, who resolved to have his revenge. This attack, the Harney Massacre, was carried out by the so-called Spanish Seminoles. A fascinating group, very little is known about them. They spoke fluent Spanish, lived in small villages on Charlotte Harbor, the old home of the ancient Calusa people, and they were friendly with Spanish traders from Cuba. There is some speculation that they were in fact Spaniards who had remained in Florida when the British took it over a generation earlier and had mixed in with the Seminoles. Tantalizingly, there is even a theory that they were descended from the last remnants of the Calusa themselves. None of this, however, is documented, and their true origin remains a mystery. Only one Spanish Seminole's name is known, that of their leader, Chacaica. A merciless warrior, Chacaica operated quite independently from the other Seminoles, as evidenced by his attack on Colonel Harney's men. The massacre spelled the end of the brief period of peace and the return to open warfare. With the remaining Seminoles now relegated to the mysterious watery world of the Everglades, the war entered its final phase, with the mission to dislodge the last of the Seminoles from the impenetrable labyrinth of sawgrass, alligators, and mosquitoes. Colonel Harney, of underwear fame, was given command of Fort Dallas on the Miami River, where downtown Miami now sits, and a buildup of troops and supplies took place as it became a primary staging ground for expeditions into the Everglades. The colonel began drilling his troops for swamp warfare tactics, and the Navy, under the command of Lieutenant John T. McLaughlin, began conducting expeditions deep into the Everglades by canoe. Back down in Indian Key, things finally came to a head in the early morning hours of August 7, 1840, when a carpenter who happened to be up late came across a group of seminal canoes drawn up to the beach of the small island. As he ran to alert Hausman and warn him of the natives on the island, the Seminoles sprang their attack. Estimates put their number at 130 warriors, 
who quickly overran the tiny island, making for the stores of valuable goods and supplies that Hausman kept. Hausman himself jumped out of a window with his family, dove into the water, and managed to escape. Dr. Perrine, the tropical horticulturist, hid his family in a turtle crawl beneath the wharf. He then turned to confront the attackers and was promptly killed. The Navy garrison had previously been removed to the nearby Tea Table Key, which had been converted to a naval hospital. Most of its able-bodied men had been removed for an expedition into the Everglades just days before, leaving only a skeleton crew commanded by midshipman Francis Key Murray. In a hasty dispatch to his commander at Key Biscayne, the junior officer wrote, quote, I have the honor to report that Indian Key was last night taken by the Indians. Our force here considered of five men, with whom joined to seven or eight of the sick who volunteered readily, but were too weak to be of much service. I started for the Key, at first with the intention of landing, which however was opposed by the enemy, who had taken refuge in every house and opened a heavy fire which fell thick around us, striking our boats and wounding one man severely and dangerously in the thigh. They appeared in great numbers on the beach, yelling and firing, which firings we returned with three discharges of our four-pounders in the barges. At the third discharge, being obliged to fire them athwartship, or sideways, our guns rebounded overboard. Being deprived of the means of cutting off their retreat, I returned to Tea Table Key to make preparations for the attack which I think more than probable it is their intention to make upon us, being assured that our amount of force and means rendered us no assistance to the inhabitants of Indian Key, if any survived, which it is not to be supposed. The families of Messrs. Hausman and two seamen have alone escaped. P.S. The Indians' force at the lowest estimate, judging from the numbers of canoes, is 50 or 60. The Indians used the long guns on the key, Hausman's six-pounders, firing them at us repeatedly with good aim. End quote. The Seminoles were thus left in undisputed control of the island. There, they spent the morning packing up every last item from Hausman's supplies into their boats before setting fire to the buildings and leaving the island in utter ruins. Miraculously, of the roughly 40 or 50 people occupying the island at the time of the attack, all but seven escaped with their lives. Dr. Henry Perrine was dead. His family traumatized and with no reason to remain, returned home to New York. Later, Henry Perrine Jr. would return to make good on the land grant he had inherited from his father, which he would finally establish on the coast of Biscayne Bay, south of the Miami River, a community located roughly halfway between Miami and Homestead that is still known today as Perrine. As reports of the Indian Key attack came in, it soon became clear that it had been perpetrated by none other than Chicaica and the Spanish Seminoles. When Colonel Harney, at Fort Dallas, learned this, he knew it was his chance to exact his revenge on the native chief who had once forced him to flee for his own life in his skivvies. Soon after, Harney set off leading an expedition of 90 men deep into the Everglades. For many days, they pushed, drug, and rowed their canoes through the swamp until finally sighting Chikaika's camp. Here, Harney abandoned the norms of civilized warfare and ordered his men to dress up like Seminoles and paint their faces. 
And thus disguised, they approached the camp as allies, and once inside, sprung their attack. Chikaika and several of his warriors were killed. The next morning, Harney had Chikaika's lifeless body hung from a tree, along with two other dead warriors. And, with their mission complete, he and his troops began their long trek back out of the swamp. The Second Seminole War finally came to an end a year and a half later, after several large groups of the remaining Seminoles in the Everglades capitulated. Though small, dogged bands remained entrenched in Florida's deepest backwaters. The U.S. estimated that they now numbered only a few hundred men, women, and children, and it was simply not worth the work of dislodging them. Public opinion was by now firmly against the inhumane conflict, whose cost had stacked up to some $40 million, over a billion dollars in today's money, at a time when the total U.S. population was less than half a percent of what it is today. Fighting was officially declared to be over in August of 1842, and all the Seminoles who remained in the peninsula were invited to live in peace on an informal reservation in the Everglades and the southwest coast. The Second Seminole War lasted for nearly seven years. At the time, no other U.S. war had lasted so long, save for the American Revolution. And even today, it remains one of the longest wars the U.S. has ever engaged in. Over 10,000 Army, Navy, and Marine regulars and about 30,000 militiamen served in the Florida War. And roughly 1,500 Americans were killed. Of these, however, most died from tropical disease. Only three or four hundred were killed in action. A testament to how much time the U.S. spent trudging exasperated through the forbidding wilderness in search of the enemy, as opposed to actually fighting them. The number of casualties suffered by the Seminoles are less clear, though some estimates put the number as high as 3,000 dead. Another 3,824 Seminoles, including 800 black Seminoles, were relocated to the Creek Reservations. Indian Key, the county seat of Dade County, lay in ruins, and with it, the fortunes of Jacob Hausman, whose island empire had come crashing down. Deeply in debt, Hausman returned to the wrecking trade in an attempt to claw his way back, but within a year, he was dead, crushed to death between two boats in a gruesome accident as he attempted to board a wrecked ship on rough seas. For all intents and purposes, the war against the Seminoles was over. The lack of a complete capitulation by the Seminoles eventually gave rise to their modern-day moniker of the Unconquered. But the Seminole Wars, which had by this point spanned a generation, had seen their numbers dwindle from their highs of over 20,000 to just a few hundred hiding in the swamps. The U.S. had accomplished its goal of clearing the way for white settlement throughout the territory. South Florida, the epicenter of the conflict's final stages, had never before been visited by so many white men, nor spent so much time in the national spotlight. One notable milestone had been achieved in 1841 
when Navy Lieutenant McLaughlin and 200 of his men set out in canoes from Fort Dallas and successfully completed the first coast-to-coast crossing of the Everglades by whites. Men such as these carried memories of the shores of Biscayne Bay with them back to their homes in the north, and by small degrees, its placid waters, invigorating and restorative winters, and breathtaking sunsets had trickled into the American consciousness. The Second Seminole War had been only the latest in a long list of setbacks for the remote Miami area's settlement. But with Florida now pacified, the untamed lands around Biscayne Bay were once again open. The adjacent Everglades were still occupied by no less than the most steadfast of the Seminoles. But the U.S. government was determined to ensure that Miami remained out of Seminole control. Henceforth, Land in the Miami area would be free for the taking for any white family who was willing to cultivate and defend it. And a new wave of settlers would soon begin to arrive. 